All right, today we're gonna to talk about some of the best um, content we highlighted and some of our original blog posts and uh, podcasts on Validia's Guru Investor blog for May 28th, 2021. And to start, I'll just get right into the article I wrote. Um, the title of it was ARK Investments and the Potential Downside of an ETF Structure. And what I really um, tried to do there was just look at the massive growth and success ARK actually has had um, in terms of their ETF business. Most of their assets are in the ARK Innovation ETF. And then just think about some of the unique um, qualities of an ETF, which there's many good ones, including their transparent, they're low cost, they can be tra can trade in real time, um, they're very tax efficient. Um, those are all the good qualities, but some of the things that, you know, just given the, the size and the scope of uh, the ARC fund, what some of those risks and concerns um, might be. So those are things like, um, you know, they can't really ever close the fund because they would have to continue issuing new shares if there continued to be demand for the ETF, what influence that may have on some of the companies they own, both when those creation units or both when there's demand for the fund or when there's redemptions um, on the ETF. Uh, I looked at some of the holdings in the in the fund and how much of a stake ARC actually had in those. And then I sort of ended with the investor returns um, and how, because a lot of investors have piled in recently, um, you know, the asset weighted return for many investors, I guess or just the overall funds asset weighted return, um, you know, isn't that isn't that great because uh, because of that performance chasing behavior. So, you know, these are all just and you guys can go read the article, but it, it wasn't really it's not a knock at all on ARC. It's really just like looking at this unique case and just sort of thinking about some of the characteristics that are that are unique to ETFs and how that might not be so positive um, in this case. Like you said, ETFs are probably the best vehicle for almost any investment strategy, but but like any type of investment vehicle, there are downsides to it. And, you know, you did a good job in the article of highlighting some of the things here. You know, this fund, the, the, the way ETFs work and the inability to close them means these focused funds that have very you know limited numbers of positions can basically grow out of control. I mean, they can grow as much as they want to, and there's no way for them to stop it. Um, so that that could eventually, you know, it might not be with ARC, it might be with some other ETF, but I would guess eventually that'll probably be an issue in the market because a fund will grow beyond what it should have grown to. And then on the, on the way back down, there'll probably be some issues. So, you know, ETFs are mostly good for almost everything, but you, you did a good job highlighting a, a few situations where in this type of niche case, you know, they, they could be bad. What was the podcast this week? Yeah, we talked to Robert Cantwell um, of Upholdings. Um, you know, it's, it's the King's uh, Compound King's ETF. Um, you know, there, there was a lot of interesting things with this. Um, you know, one is we are as quant investors. I always love talking to discretionary investors. You know, and he he runs a very you know he's a believer in focused investing like we are, but he runs a very discretionary portfolio. And so we really got into how he selects. You know, the criteria he uses to try to select these long-term compounders and how he looks at things like valuation and, and how a bunch of other things about his investment strategy. But also, it's very rare to see anything that 
you know, has never been done in the ETF space. I mean, every ETF that could conceivably be launched has probably been launched at this point. But he's done a couple of things in the ETF space that have never been done before. You know, one, he took a hedge fund and he converted it to an ETF. And so we, we go in depth in that process about what, what had to be done, what the SEC required, how, you know, the process of going from a hedge fund to an ETF and bringing all the investors with you. And the other thing is he's, he's authorized to hold public companies. You know, he was an investor in the Airbnb IPO in his hedge fund, um, and he, he was able to bring the, the private companies in to the ETF. And so as far as he knows, you know, other than bond ETFs, there are, there are no equity ETFs that have the ability to hold private companies. So that's pretty cool that he actually has two things he's done that had never been done before in an ETF. So it was a really interesting interview, and it's a really good learning process for you know, us being on the opposite side of the spectrum as quant investors to learn about how someone like that looks at the market. Yeah, one of the things that he said, we were talking about at the end of the podcast, we were talking about Buffett and how we've talked about with other guests we've interviewed, how he, he attra Buffett attracts high quality shareholders. And uh, Robert made, I thought was a really interesting point, something I don't think either of us had ever thought about, which is that's true. But, you know, a lot of Buffett shareholder base, they're really like older people that have been with Buffett, you know, potentially for a very long time. So when you think about who is going to like take the baton from those investors, you know, is it going to be today's younger investor? I mean, I think there's certainly a lot of you know, younger investors that are uh, huge Buffett fans, but it's just an interesting thing. Like he was like, you know, Buffett's got to think about like almost like reinventing his, and I'm, I'm not, he didn't say this specifically, but like kind of like reinventing his philosophy, if you will. Although that's one thing I admire about Buffett is the consistency over time, but kind of reinventing it to become more, maybe interesting to, you know, the younger generation of investors. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you want high quality shareholders, but you also want shareholders who invest with a long term time horizon today to be very interested in your fund. And so, you know, in, in Buffett's case, he may have a lot of people that have held the fund for a very, very long time. And so there, there's not turnover in the shareholder base. And so maybe those people who want like the long term, you know, compounding type approach from today, maybe they're not as interested in Berkshire. So I thought that was interesting. Um, what was your article this week? So, yeah, it was a New York Times article. Um, the economy is different. The, co the economy is, in parentheses, almost back. It is looking different than it used to. And so what this article was highlighting, it was a pretty, pretty meaty piece, but it was just highlighting like, and everyone kind of knows a lot of this, but just ha sort of the economic winners and losers during the pandemic and how it's changed sort of spending behavior and habits. So, you know, you have things like recreational goods, you know, like up 26% uh, first quarter, you know, over, I think this is a year over year. So you have like recreational goods up 26.3%, you know, information processing equipment up 23%, uh, home furnishings and durable household equipment up 16%. So there's clearly a lot of demand for, you know, uh, goods in terms of doing things like campers and like pool equipment and stuff like that. People reinvesting and making their house nicer because they're home, at home more. But then you have obviously the, the negatives, which transportation, you know, is getting crushed. Recreation services, stuff like concerts and stuff like that, you know, down pretty significantly. Food and accommodations, you know, down almost 20%. So this article was just really trying to peel back the onion and look at the areas of the market that have seen the biggest benefit and also the ones that have seen the biggest hit. And then sort of, you know, sort of like implying like maybe some of these trends are going to be, you know, with us for a longer period of time or longer than we think. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I think about this a lot because we, we've obviously had a, you know, a massive boom here in the economy or, or starting to have one. And so the question is, will will that continue? You know, will we just have a, you know massive economic growth going forward or have we pulled some of this stuff you know forward? So effectively, you know, if you think about pools as an example you used, you know, are, are we going to have way more pools built now or have we taken the people that we're going to build pools in the next five years and we've pulled a lot of them into the current year and maybe that, you know, that growth rate won't be sustainable and, you know, pools will maybe maybe go back down. And you, know, you can say the same thing about home furnishings and a bunch of other stuff is, you know, maybe we've pulled some of this stuff into the present or, or maybe we're going to have a long boom. I mean, I don't have the answer to that, but it's it's interesting to think about it. No, I think that that's a fair point. I do think, you know, probably pulling some of the spending forward. I think that, you know, but you might have also gotten people that while we're home, we're not going to go to the uh, the public pool anytime soon or our lake association or whatever. So let's build a pool. So I think it's kind of probably a combination of both in there. You've got like some spending that is a direct result of people's like behavior changing about how they think about things. But then you probably have others that, you know, maybe they're thinking about it anyways. And they said, well, let's just do it now. There's no better time to do it. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see if these growth rates come down in some of these areas. Um, what was your article? It was called Robert Schiller looks back at the first Roaring Twenties, and it was interesting because he was sort of, you know, Schiller's done some great work around narrative, and he was sort of looking at what happened in the Twenties compared to what happened now, um, and maybe some of the similarities and some of the differences. Because obviously, the I, I didn't even know the exact numbers, but the Twenties market was even better market than now, um, and obviously that ended in a pretty catastrophic end. And so the question is, you know, are, are we in for a Roaring Twenties, but also are we in for that type of end? And so he he looked at a bunch of different things. Um, you know, I'll just read a quote from the article. He said, "As great as this bull market looks on paper, Schiller." describes the decade ending in March 21 as spectacular. The market in, in most of the Roaring Twenties was even better. Data shows a six-fold increase in the value between 1919 and 1929. So just a massive run in the market. And you have a lot of the same type of things that were going on then. You know, he said people played the market as a grand game, abetted by technological innovation and new mass media. So playing the market as a game is certainly something we're seeing now. He talked about little scrutiny of fundamentals. So we're seeing little scrutiny of fundamentals now. People aren't really that concerned with the PE ratio of GameStop when they're buying it. They don't even know what it is. Um, so, you know, we're seeing that type of stuff. But also that doesn't necessarily mean that this ends the way the 20s ended. And, and he said that. He said there's no particular reason to expect a market collapse. It would be as bad as the 1929 crash. And, you know, one of the main reasons for that is, you know, first of all, you don't see that's that's a crash that we've only seen once. So you don't expect to ever see that again. But also the, the Fed is much better now. Um, you know, the, the Fed made some serious mistakes. Um, you know, in that in that period that sort of led to that bear market being a lot worse than it otherwise would have been. And, you know, the Fed is at the opposite end of the spectrum now. You know, the Fed is being very aggressive and accommodative in, in, in the policies they're they're following. So, you know, I don't think it's it's you know, I don't think we should look for anything similar to that to happen. And, you know, I don't think he's saying that either. But it is interesting to look at the parallels um, between that period and now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of people don't realize like like decades like the 20s and the 50s were just, you know, huge decades for stocks um you know and hopefully <laughs> i think stocks were down like 80 or 90 percent during the great depression so if it got that bad we'd all be in trouble um just given the amount just given how how many people in this country now you know own stocks i know the 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 ultra wealthy own the majority of stocks but stocks are definitely you know more widely owned um by people in the economy than they were you know, back in the back in the back in the 1920s. So, so, anyways, guys, um, thank you guys for watching this, and uh, we hope you enjoyed the discussion. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. 
Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.